Faith and deeds. Ranza has already coached us, given us our marching orders, and here is the passage that is kind of at the center of the letter of James and gives us our, our theme all the way through this study. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have deeds. Um, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it is credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Pretty provocative teaching, actually. And uh, today I want to kind of zero in on that again. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask us to sort of go off and think about how it is that um, God has acted out his commitments. So in what way has God been a model of faith and deeds? Not as though God needs faith but that God is a God of truth and all of the attributes that we learn about him, how, how does he actually apply these things? So I'm going to take you on a little uh, excursion. I'm going to take you to the world bucket list, and this is going to seem weird until I explain it in a little while, but here are the top 10 extreme sports. So I don't know if any of you are extreme sports people. Anybody? No? I mean, the worst I've ever done was um, whitewater rafting in a, I think, class five rapids in Uganda. That was scary to death, scary. It was like under the water, trying to believe what they had told me, that the rapids would spit me out after I had felt like drowning. That was pretty close. Or when I was a youth pastor, I used to go skiing with some crazy farmer young people, and the rule was that whatever the person who was leading did, everybody else had to do the same thing. So we skied the top of, of Marmot, it's called the Knob, and it was a ridiculous, you know, black diamond ski run. And whatever the lead guy did, everybody had to do, or you would have to sit out the rest of the day. So I was not gonna waste the money on the lift ticket, but we did some stupid things, pretty close to extreme. Anyway, here are the top 10 extreme sports ice climbing it's the winter sports 
winter. Um, the comment is this. For those of you who love frozen ice worlds and winter sports, this one is for you. Requiring a de delicate combination of agility, strength, balance, and stamina, ice climbing is certainly not for the faint of heart. This extreme sport includes climbers tackling frozen landscapes and battling the odds of avalanches, as well as falling ice and rocks. Number nine, volcano boarding for the natural disaster buff. While we've all seen a natural disaster film or two, we as humans generally don't like to test fate. For some, however, boarding down an active volcano seems like the ideal day out. If you're the kind of soul that likes to dance with death, this is the extreme sports in the world that you will like best. Heli skiing, the two for one. If jumping out of a helicopter or skiing deadly isolated mountain slopes wasn't exciting enough, why not pair them together and try heli skiing? This sport involves skiers being dropped from helicopters on some of the world's most challenging and remote slopes. Without a doubt, this concoction of pure adrenaline earns heli skiing a spot on our list of the most extreme sports in the world. Find the one you like yet? Number seven. Ew. Crocodile bungee jumping. As if it weren't hair-raising enough, how about jumping over crocodile-infested waters? This unusual sport is popular in Australia and Africa and has had its share of tragedies to date. Limbo skating for the most flexible. Hugely popular in India, this is one of the entries on our list of extreme sports that if you haven't checked it out before, now's the time. This sport involves roller skating in a splits position and passing underneath cars or low bars. The lowest limbo skating stint achieved under bars was 603 feet by somebody in India in 2017. We're getting a base jumping. For those of you who tried parachuting and decided it was simply too boring, <laughs> there's always this unusual sport which may just do the trick. Base jumping involves jumping off tall structures such as bridges, cliffs, or buildings, taking into consideration all of the unforeseen variables such as wind change. Base jumping, jumping has had a huge mortality rate that is 43% higher than its predecessor, parachuting. <sighs> Wing walking one of the most extreme sports of the world. Wing walking is yet another extreme sport that takes something already hair-raising and l takes it up a notch. This activity earns its way onto our list of extreme sports due to the sheer insanity of it. Wing walking involves someone standing on top of a fast-moving small airplane, 300 kilometers an hour to be specific, as it performs turns and tricks. Big wave surfing for the ultimate surfers. Surfing is a challenging sport, but for even the most confident and athletic people in the world of extreme sports, everything has to be the biggest, the best, the most exhilarating. Big wave surfing does exactly what it says on the tin and involves surfers taking on the very large waves. To make matters even more intense, this sport commonly takes place in the dungeons of South Africa, the breeding grounds of the great white sharks on 1,000-foot waves, making this sport life-threatening in more ways than one. Almost done. Free solo climbing. 
Practice worldwide free solo climbing involves rock climbers tackling challenging summits without the assistance of any safety equipment. Should they fall, death is the only plausible outcome. Free solo climbing is most popular in natural surroundings such as mountain ranges and national parks, although it's becoming increasingly urban uh, popular sports as well. Last one is highlining. Highlining is an extreme sport that includes a daredevil, tightrope walking, a thin line between two mountains, buildings, or fixed points. Only one inch in width, the tightrope is usually suspended about a thousand feet above safe ground. Although many highliners wear a safety harness, should they slip, the strength to get oneself back standing up is beyond your wildest imagination. Of course, the most famous highliners go it alone with no safety equipment, possessing only their agility and balance to save them from fall to death. The most famous of these is the world record holder, Dean Potter. Crazy. Extreme sports. Why do we do these things? Why do they do these things? Long list of illustrations for a single point. Extreme. Okay, that's the word I want to talk about today. When I try to understand the way that God has applied in his deeds what his truth has proposed. The word that comes to mind is the word extreme. The way that God practiced his character in the interplay between himself and his created people has to be described by the word extreme. And as we get through all of this, I think the charge to each of us is that if we want to apply our faith into deeds, the word extreme should come into play. Do we do to the extreme what we say we believe? How did God show us that what he declared he was willing to do to the extreme? So I don't want you to walk on one inch thick tight ropes across canyons. Don't want you to jump from buildings, any of that kind of stuff, except to remember that there are people in the world who do extreme things. So I want to ask you, do you do anything extreme? I mean, in what sense um, have you been extreme? And then as we think about the way that we apply our faith into our deeds, could it ever be described by the word extreme? Do we sometimes sort of get that our faith ought to be matched by our deeds? And then we try to stack up our deeds and say, I think they're pretty much congruent with what I believe. Do we say that? Or do we ever say, what I do is an extreme expression of what I believe? And again, back to, to the way that God has shown us his example in all of this. In what way did what God do have to do with what he declared, and could we use the word extreme? So, so let me just guide you through that a little bit. So in this passage in James, we're given two Old Testament illustrations. And those two Old Testament illustrations are, to James's point, that faith without deeds is dead. So if you say you have faith and have no deeds, don't claim you have faith. It, it doesn't work that way. 
Now, Paul, as you know, would maybe take issue with James and say, wait a minute, James, faith is the most important thing. And James would agree, but James would say, but faith, if you claim that it exists, would always be accompanied by deeds. If it's not accompanied by deeds, what kind of faith is that? How could you even claim that that's faith? So he says, really, Paul, faith without deeds is kind of dead. Two examples James gives us are Abraham and Rahab. And just the selection of those two illustrations is, is kind of poignant, right? So in James's account of the story of Abraham, he, he doesn't even talk about the fact that, he, that Abraham didn't actually offer Isaac up. He, he talks as though it had happened. And he says, it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac on the altar. And you can say, wait, wait a minute, James. Um, Abraham didn't actually do that. Well, if we go back and examine the story, no, didn't, he didn't actually do it. But the, the, the explanation in the Bible is that Abraham had this going on in his head. If I sacrifice Isaac, I believe that God can bring him back to life. And so he fully intended to obey God. He fully intended to sacrifice his son. Terrible as we think about what, what was being um, anticipated by this father having been given uh, the son of promise. But James says, because of his faith, Abraham, he doesn't even say was willing, but he, 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 he sort of conjectures and imagines Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. It has happened in Abraham's head. He has taken Isaac, he has laid him on the altar, he has tied him on the altar. He has raised the knife to slay his son. Isaac is dead in, in any scenario. And James says this was an example of Abraham having faith. What would be the word that you would, exp- that you would use to describe this act of, of faith? Extreme, right? In, in what way did Abraham express his faith by deeds? In an extreme way, to even give up the life of his son. Because of his faith, his deeds were extreme deeds. The other story that James selects from the Old Testament, and again, you might wonder, why in the world is he talking about Rahab? I mean, in fact, why does the Bible even talk about Rahab? Why is Rahab to be celebrated? Rahab was a prostitute, right? And yet we find that Rahab factors into the the very lineage of Jesus and so on as, as we go through the rest of the Bible. And the story of Rahab is that Joshua and Caleb have been sent to spy out Jericho. So as they have come to sort of reconnoiter Jericho and decide how it will be taken, the king of Jericho gets wind of the fact that they're in town, and he goes on a search. And rumor has it that these two spies have been seen in Rahab's house on the wall. Rahab lives on the wall in, in Jericho. And so they come to the door, and they say, are the spies from Israel in your house? She says, no. They came, but I sent them away. 
liar, liar, pants on fire, right? And yet, she is held up as an example of faith. So, you know, pipe down all of you self-righteous folks. Rahab showed faith by what she did. Uh, Joshua and Caleb were hiding in the flax. And as soon as the, um, you know, soldiers went away, Rahab quickly ran up to them and said, you've got to get out of town because the king of Jericho knows you're here and he's going to kill you. So she takes a rope and she lets them down out of a window down the wall. What is she doing? She is risking herself. She's risking her life. She has lied to the soldiers of the king. She has lied somehow or other still believing in the God who was going to bring an army and to destroy Jericho. Um, she has lied about all of that. And now she's, she's taking her life in her hands as she carefully lets these two spies descend the wall and escape, right? James says that's an example of faith in deeds. Again, what word would you use to describe that act? Extreme, right? Lying, risking her life, sheltering people she doesn't even know about. Now, she makes a deal, so here's the, the shrewdness in, in the Rahab who says, look, I know that the God of Israel, the God that you know, is, is going to give you a victory over Jericho. So when he does, here's my deal. I, I'm going to help you escape if you will do this for me. So she, she makes her little deal with them, and, and they honor her deal, right? James says, can faith without deeds save you? No, don't be ridiculous. If it's real faith, there have to be deeds. Well, in what way, James, would deeds demonstrate faith? James would say, when they are extreme when they really go to the wall, when they are really extravagant, when, when they are without any kind of question or hesitation, when they are a complete sort of consistency between what a person says and what a person does. So, so James has made it very practical. He says, look, you know, s suppose there's a person that you know who is hungry and, and homeless. He doesn't have clothes, doesn't have anything to eat. And you say to him, oh, God bless you. Be warm and well-fed. James says, what good is that? In, in what way is your faith being demonstrated by what you have done? You have simply said words, and they have nothing at all to do with your actions. So James is pressing it really hard and saying, you, you don't get to, to sort of wiggle your way out of this. If you are a person of faith, you have to be a person of deeds. And it's, it's not because the deeds are going to earn you credit with God. I mean, you know, James might say, Paul's already got that covered, right? That, that's not how you're going to get to heaven. That's not how you're going to get your sins forgiven. But if you have real faith, it's incomprehensible to me that you wouldn't have matching deeds and what would those deeds look like as they match what you have claimed they would look extreme 
when we go back then and say, okay, so faith without deeds is dead. Um, what are some examples in the Bible where the example of Abraham, the example of Rahab, both of them extreme examples, we would say, okay, so apparently we're being called to look more extravagant than we have so far. Apparently I'm being called to be more extreme than I might have been. I, I'm not just allowed to kind of do what I say. I, I'm being called to do what I say extremely, radically, to the nth degree, right? Then we go back a little bit farther and ask, well, how did God show us this kind of you know, coherence between what he said was true, what he said he was going to do, and what he actually did? Well, I, I'm brought back to um, a couple of passages in the New Testament, one in John chapter 13 that I've come to many times with you, and the other one in Philippians chapter 2. So in John chapter 13, you have this um, really engaging story of Jesus teaching his disciples an incredible lesson about servanthood. So the area in which I'd like to sort of meditate for a moment, um, that God has matched what he said with what he did, is the area of servanthood this whole idea that God somehow is willing to be a servant. And, and that's mind-blowing enough. How, how, how can it be that the God who is the creator and sustainer of everything could be any kind of a servant? I mean, it makes no sense. He would always be, in, in any normal thinking, um, the sovereign, you know, the deity the one who is to be worshipped, the one who is to be served, the one to whom we should give thanks, the one whom we should glorify. So first of all, it's hard enough to grasp that this God would have any comparison to being a servant. And yet God presents himself in the person of Jesus as a servant. In John chapter 13, Jesus shows it to his disciples in, in really graphic form. He, he, he takes a towel and a basin and he washes his disciples' feet. What kind of servanthood is that? Back to the same word that we've come all the way through with, extreme. He, he didn't just serve them. You know, he, he didn't say, guys, l let me help. Let's all go get basin and towels, let, let's all wash one another's feet. Let, you know, let, let me make sure that there's good, fresh water and, and towels. Let, let's do that together. Or let's go make a meal together and, and, and actually serve. And they might say, oh, come on, Lord, you don't need to help us get the basin and towels and the food. Just sit down and let, let the servant people take care of that. No, what Jesus does is he who is the Lord and Master, and he says that to his disciples, if I, your Lord and Master, right? If I do this, you have to do this. So Jesus, who is God incarnate, says one of the ways in which God acts out what he says is as a servant. What does that look like? It looks extreme. Jesus did an extreme act of service. Dirty, smelly feet on these dirty, smelly guys in a dirty, smelly climate. 
and Jesus got on his, his knees, he, he, he first of all, you know, lowered himself and, and kind of stripped down, got on his knees, got down to where their feet were, and did an extreme act of service. The other place is in Philippians chapter 2, which is the, the key doctrinal passage of servanthood where it says in really explicit terms that Jesus was the one who was God through and through. Right? That, that there, let's settle that. Jesus is not a semi-God. He's, he's not a second-place God. He's not the second person in the, in the deity or in the Trinity. He is God. He's the one who created everything. Everything that, that has come into being came into being through him even though he was God through and through. And then Paul in Philippians goes step by step down the road towards servanthood. And when he gets to the end of it, he says, even though, remember we started with Jesus being thoroughly God, no question on that, he became a servant through and through. He, he took on human flesh and Paul uses a particular word for the fact that Jesus is God through and through. He uses another word for Jesus looking like a man. Not, it's not Paul disputing the, the true humanity of Jesus, but that's not his point. His point is that Jesus was through and through God, and he became through and through a servant. He didn't look like a servant. Right? He, he didn't match his behavior in any kind of a facade sort of way. He, he, he didn't show up and say, now guys, um, one of the lessons you really need to learn is about servanthood. So I want you to learn how to be a servant. I'll show you how to be a servant. I'm going to pretend to be a servant like you should be a servant. So let me wash your feet. I'll just pretend I'm your servant. It, it's not pretense. The Son of Man came to seek and to save, to give his life for many. He came not to be served, but to serve. At the end of the Kenosis passage in Philippians, God exalted Jesus, gave him the name that's above every name. But it's only because at the very end of the downward staircase, Jesus took on the thorough nature of a servant. In what way did God being a servant um, reflect his in, intent to match what he said with what he did in an extreme way, right? It, it's an extreme kenosis, emptying, is, is what the, the Greek term means there. He emptied himself completely. He became a servant thoroughly, through and through. What is God now? He is still a servant. That's extreme. Extreme's not even a strong enough word. The God who created everything that there is has become a servant. It, it, at the end of the, you know, the terrible ordeal of crucifixion and then resurrection, you know, God didn't finally say, whew, 
glad that's done. We can cut, you know, this notion of being a servant and, and let it, you know, just sort of go adrift. God didn't stop being a servant. He is still a servant. The God of the universe is a servant to his creation by nature. He, he wasn't a servant before. He was God before. He was the sovereign before. He still is God. He still is the sovereign. But he now is a servant. The God of the universe is our servant. He's chosen to be our servant. That is extreme. And it causes us, I think, to shrink back and say, oh my, my goodness, I, I can't take this lightly. I, I can't pass this off. I can't so, sort of say, oh, that's interesting. That's a, um, a cute way to characterize things. No, he really did. He, he became a servant to his creation and has stayed a servant to his creation. I love the book uh, Abba's Child by Brendan Manning. And in one of the chapters here, he quotes a French theologian, Yves Congar, who says this, The revelation of Jesus is not contained in his teaching alone. It is also, and perhaps we ought to say, mainly in what he did. Not what he taught, but what he did. The coming of the word into our flesh, God's acceptance of the status of servant, the washing of the disciples' feet, all this has the force of revelation and a revelation of God. And then uh, Manning adds this, a profound mystery. God becomes a slave. This implies very specifically that God wants to be known through servanthood. Such is God's own self-disclosure. God doesn't want us to say with embarrassment, oh, God, you're a servant. God says, that, that's what I am. That's who I am. And, and any charges that we bring against God as we try to sort out the world and its affairs and our lives and its affairs, our, our, their affairs, God says, I, I'm, I'm still your servant. And whatever we wish God would do or wonder what God is doing, the truth in back of it all is that God is serving his creation. And he's serving it towards its redemption. He's serving it towards the provision of everything that he delightfully gave to us at the beginning. And now as a servant... He says, let me unscramble all the things you've scrambled up. Let me fix all the things you've broken. Let me undo the power of your enemy. Let me conquer your enemy and have him gone. Let me deliver to you the best of my mind and my heart and my thoughts. And let me deliver them to you as a servant, as a gift to you that serves up to you the best that I could ever have thought of. Manning says, this is God's self-disclosure. The self-disclosure of God comes by revelation, according to this theologian. God says, I am a servant. 
God says, I am, I am, I am. We have a whole Bible full of the I am statements and discoveries. And behind it all, we have God saying, I'm, I'm a servant, I am your servant. What word would describe the way in which God has acted out what he says he is? It's extreme. What way did Abraham's deeds demonstrate his faith in an extreme way? What way did Rahab's behavior demonstrate her faith? Her deeds were extreme. And James says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Faith without works is nonsense. Faith with works, in fact, extreme works, that's when faith really shows up. If we want to know what Jesus was all about, this writer says, maybe don't pay so much attention to what he said as to what he did. What did he do? And by what he did, what do we know about who he was? What do we know about love by watching his deeds? What do we know about love at the cross? We know that his love was extreme. Words fail us to find a way to describe his love. His love was willing to be scorned. He's the God of the universe. He was willing to be scorned. He was willing to be beaten. He was willing to be accused, falsely accused. He was willing to suffer an excruciating death. There could have been another way except it wouldn't have been the way of the servant that God chose and then showed us in an extreme form. The love of Jesus on the cross is beyond words. We only come to the word extreme and say, that was extreme love. That was extreme sacrifice. That was extreme. What is God like? All the ways that God is, they're extreme. His grace is extreme. It's extreme. There's nothing it can't conquer. There's nothing it can't consume. There's nothing it can't reach. God's grace is extreme. God's mercy is extreme. And when we feel as though we have done something too bad, you know, God couldn't possibly overlook or forgive, God would take us to the cross and say, what did, what did I tell you at the cross? I told you that I love you with an extreme love. I told you that I was a forgiving God with extreme forgiveness. I told you that I was a God who longed for you the best and has worked the best for you, the extreme best. I have done all of this for you. Because I am a servant. When we compare the panoply of gods and all of the writings and legends and myths of all of human history, what god is like this? Which, which of the Canaanite gods, which of the Roman gods, which of the Greek gods, which of the current gods is a servant? None. They all seek mastery. They all seek their own. 
They, they all suck from us all that they can get. This one true God, by nature, serves his creation. By nature, he serves us. That's extreme. The nonsense about extreme sports. Just to point out the word extreme. There probably are better words. Superb, extravagant, beyond, incomprehensible, indiscoverable. All, it's just extreme. And it, it hasn't stopped. He has not stopped being a servant. Our closing song is The Servant King, which is a contradiction in terms that is resolved in our God who says, I am a servant. I have become a servant to my creation. Way back in the councils of eternity, Father, how will we solve the dilemma of sin and mutiny? By sacrificial servanthood. What? And then God says, watch. And the story of the Bible is God coming and serving to save his creation. If, if that doesn't change our hearts and our minds about how we should live and how we should relate to God, I don't know what would. When, when anybody comes along and does you a kindness, you're indebted, right? You want to say thank you. You want to do something. You want to be astonished. You want to say, well, why, why did you do that? When the God of the universe says, I'm okay with being your servant so that the best for you can be supplied. My greatest hopes for you can be realized. What do we say about that? James says, okay, at the very least, your faith must be matched by your deeds. What would you do that is extreme? in terms of the way that you live out your servant identity as a follower of Christ. What is it that I can do that you could do that at the end of the day, as someone would observe it, the comment would be made, that was extreme. What's a thing I could do that would be an extreme act of service? Not just an act of kindness, but an extreme act act of service that would cost me that would challenge me that would stretch me James says at least your deeds should match your faith but they should match your faith extremely what does that look like I'm going to invite you to take the emblem of the servanthood of our king this, the emblem of the bread and the cup. In Philippians, the, 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 the most disturbing little phrase is even death on a cross. Like, that was the extreme end of God's servanthood. 
even though he was God through and through, he didn't consider equality with God something to hang on to, but he took on the form of a servant. Or he was found an appearance like a man. He was willing to die, even death on a cross. For you, for me, death on a cross. How extremely does God love us? Extremely enough to die on a cross. The bread and the cup are the ways that we regularly come back to meditate on that. And we remember that the body of Jesus was broken, even death on a cross. The blood of Jesus was shed, even death on a cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All the while, he says, if I, your Lord and Master, have done this, you should serve one another extremely. Extremely.